Sorry about that. All right, our New Testament reading. I did. We are. And, um, yeah, and he asked me, he said, you want to do the um, call to worship and the reading? And it just, and I had it, and it was in my notes, but I just, I didn't. Anyway, I'll, uh, we're good. <laughs> John 10, and we'll uh, read verses 1 through 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. This is God's word. Remain standing. Remain standing. I'll comment on what's happened today in just a minute, okay? Luke chapter 1 is our uh, sermon text. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this amazing moment in redemptive history that we've just read about. The moment announcing the birth of our Savior and letting your chosen vessel, the Virgin Mary, in on the plan. We're overwhelmed by that. And we thank you for sending Jesus. And as we study his name today, deepen our love for him, intensify our commitment to him, Draw us into a closer walk with him and help us to speak more about him. For the good of our church, your church, the good of our community, 
and for the glory of your name. Speak, O Lord, from your word today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I agree with Rita. I could could sing that song every Sunday. It's a joy as a pastor and a preacher to hear his congregation sing that prayer. Singing that prayer. What a blessing that is. And uh, so, uh, not not necessarily advocating for singing that every Sunday, but you wouldn't get a complaint from me if you decided to do that. Um, Before we move on in our study... uh, I wanted to add an encouraging note to one of the names from last week, Uh, and I pray this will will be an encouragement to you. Uh, One of the names we considered last week was heir of all things from Hebrews chapter 1. And for those of us visiting maybe for the first time, we're in the middle or maybe in the first third of a study of the different names of Jesus, some of the different names. We won't get them all, of course, but some of the main scriptural names that the Bible gives to our Lord and Savior Jesus. And one of the ones last week was heir of all things. Well, guess what? As born-again people, we have a direct connection to that name. Now, why do I say that? Well, we're going to go on a quick side trip here to start off our our sermon time today. And we're going to look at Romans 8, verse 17. You know, as believers in Jesus, we also have names that could be studied. I I know you know that. Uh, Names like Christian. They were first called Christian at Antioch. Uh, Name like saints, uh, children of God, royal priesthood. We studied some of these in in our study of Peter because he used these names in in 1 Peter. Uh, People of God. More than conquerors, holy nation, born-again people, etc., etc. So you could do a study of names for Christians. And in Romans 8, 17, we see a beautiful one where we read, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So, Jesus is the heir of all things. We studied that last week. And I want to kick off this message this morning with a reminder that we are fellow heirs, joint heirs. We we share that name with Jesus. Now, this, of course, is a spiritual inheritance. There is no promise of health, wealth, or material prosperity in this life, contrary to to the teachings of the heretics in the prosperity gospel movement that seems to have swept the third world where solid theology is desperately needed and why I am so thankful that Ryan and Emily Curry are there in Liberia teaching and training those new young pastors in that country solid theology, teaching them the Word of God so they can pass it on to the people there. But this morning, as, 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 as a, an introduction to our study of the name of Jesus, let's ponder this name for us that we share with Jesus together. First, let's, let's consider two of the primary objects 
of this glorious inheritance. As joint heirs with Jesus, we inherit the kingdom. We inherit the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 25, we read about that final day when Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats. And according to Matthew 7, there's going to be a lot of surprise goats. What? Didn't we do all this stuff, even call you the right name, Lord? Didn't we, you know, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And he, so he's separating the truth from the false, the wheat from the tares. And in Matthew 25, the sheep from the goats. And in verse 34, we read this, the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. From the foundation of the world. You know, that, that time in history when he chose us in his, the beloved. He chose us in Christ. And at that same moment when he chose us, he prepared for us the kingdom that we would inherit. It. What a thought. What a thought. That's, that makes for some good pondering. As fellow heirs with Christ, we inherit the kingdom, and we will reign with him. Why? Because we are fellow heirs with Christ. In Psalm 2.8, God says to Jesus, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And that is our heritage as well. Why? Because we are fellow heirs with Christ. Jesus directly states this in two of his letters to the churches of Revelation. To Thyatira in Revelation 2, 26 and 27, he says, To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Beloved, that's your destiny. As, as a joint heir with Jesus, you will be given authority over the nations. To Laodicea in Revelation 3.21, Jesus says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Wow. But we, I mean, we could go on and on about this, but I got to get to the next name of Jesus. But just think of it this way. Think of it like this, okay? Before salvation, we were, we were paupers outside the castle of the king, begging for crumbs just to survive. And we get the whole kingdom. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Beloved, let that sink in. We were begging for crumbs and we get everything. We deserve the domain of hell and we're getting the kingdom of heaven. But not only do we inherit the kingdom, we inherit God. We inherit God. This is obviously the primary and most wonderful object of our inheritance. In Romans 18, the, fra the phrase that comes before joint heirs with Jesus or fellow heirs with Jesus, whichever translation you're using, I think ESV is, is fellow heirs. But the phrase before that 
says we are heirs of God. Heirs of God. Now that can be looked at in two ways. Depending on how you interpret the word of. That sounds kind of scary, doesn't it? Depends on what the meaning of the word of is. But anyway, uh, depending on how you interpret the word of. We are heirs of God in that we are people who have inherited a lot of wonderful things who belong to God. So that's interpreting the word of as belonging to, okay? Like, this is the cup of the pastor. That This cup belongs to me, okay? The heirs of God, we are heirs who belong to God, okay? But it can also be looked at as we are heirs of God in that we are very blessed people who have inherited God himself, okay? When Amy and I die, Don and Ty are going to inherit a lot of junk up in our attic. They will be heirs of that junk, you know, of, of, uh, they, okay. But our inheritance is so much better than that, okay. Boy, they're going to be so mad at me, mad at us after, after we're dead and gone. They're going to be so mad at us because we don't throw anything away, and they're going to have to deal with it, okay. <clears throat> let, me, let, me, let me stop rambling here and bring in my my good buddy and friend and mentor uh, from a distance who doesn't even know that I exist, but one day we will meet in heaven. Let me bring in James Montgomery Boyce right here. And let me Here's what he says. Let's come back to our text to the phrase heirs of God. Is this a subjective or an objective genitive in the, in the Greek language? Again, it could be either. If it's a subjective genitive, then God is the subject and the meaning, and the meaning is that we belong to God as God's heirs. We are heirs that belong to God, okay? He has fixed his love upon us and made us heirs by his grace. But if it's an objective genitive, then the meaning is we have God as our inheritance. This is the boldest of the two possibilities, but it is what I'm convinced Paul is saying here. In other words, we're not just blessed people of God who inherit a lot of wonderful stuff. We inherit God himself. Let's ponder this glorious thought for a few minutes. First, using Scripture. In Joshua 13, we read this, But to the tribe of Levi... So you know, they've, they've come to Canaan, they're dividing things up, okay? But to the tribe of Levi, and that's important because that foreshadows us as a kingdom of priests. As you know, the tribe of Levi were the priests. So that's a foreshadowing of us as a kingdom of priests. To the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. Oh, bummer. They don't get anything? Well, what? There's not a period there. There's a semicolon. And then it goes on to say, the Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. Now, what should be our response to that? Well, I think the psalmist in Psalm 73 said it well, 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's all I need. And one day, I, you, me, all of us, we are going to inherit him in all of his fullness. Listen, you think you know God really well, and some of us know God better than others. We're all at a kind of a relative scale there. But listen, none of us, none of us, none of us are touching the hem of his garment. One day we will know him in all his fullness, in all his glory, when we inherit him. John Piper says it like this in great little book, God is the Gospel. He says, propitiation, redemption, forgiveness, imputation, sanctification, liberation, healing, heaven. All these important words, all these wonderful scriptural words that come with our salvation. None of these is good news except for one reason. They bring us to God for our everlasting enjoyment of Him. If we believe all these things happen to us, propitiation, redemption, justification, forgiveness, etc., if we believe all these things happen to us, but do not embrace them for the sake of getting to God, they have not happened to us. Even if you know what those words mean. If, if, if God isn't the focus and the center and, and, the, and the crown and the foundation and the perimeter of who you are, then all these important words of Scripture mean nothing. I think that's what Dr. Piper's saying. He goes on. Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. Do you discern that difference? Do you see that difference? Okay. Heaven without God is not heaven. Okay. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. Okay? We saw this in our study of 1 Peter. Not too long ago in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to heaven. No, that's not what it says, is it? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You hear that? To bring us to God, not to bring us to a wonderful place, not to bring us to streets of gold, not to bring us to a place prepared for us in the dwelling place of the ultimate dwelling place of God, not to bring us where we can see the gates of pearl, none of, none of that, not to bring us to the, the apostles, the disciples, or, or our grandma, or our dad, or, the, or our loved ones that we miss, no, to bring us to God. 
So what say you right now? Have you been converted by the gospel? Piper says, remember what he, if we don't want God above all things, we've not been converted by the gospel. So have you been converted by the gospel? Well, if the Holy Spirit shows you today that you haven't, i got good news for you. Today's the day of salvation. Today's the day. Repent. Confess your sin. Confess your sin of putting things ab- above God, of, of desiring other things more than you desire God. Repent of that and, and trust Jesus as Lord. Confess him as Lord today. Today. This is the day of salvation. Is the fact that because of the gospel, you have God as your inheritance right now dimly. And then one day in all of its glorious fullness as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is that the most wonderful fact of your life? If not, today's the day of salvation. If not, you need to be born again. And I'm praying God will do that. I'm praying God will be gracious to you today, and he will do that, and you will follow Christopher in the waters of baptism. Also in our study of 1 Peter, we saw the nature of this glorious inheritance. In 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, remember these beautiful, Holy Spirit-inspired words, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, there it is, inheritance. Why inheritance? Because we're joint heirs with Jesus. To an inheritance that it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So, our inheritance is imperishable. The Greek means not corruptible, but permanent. In its positive form, Uh, This word evokes the image of a land ravaged by a conquering enemy. So Peter is saying that that can't happen to our inheritance. It's opposite of that. It's imperishable. It cannot be plundered or spoiled by spiritual foes. Undefiled. The Greek word means unpolluted or unstained by sin, evil, or decay. In other words, our inheritance can never be contaminated or corrupted. It is unblemished and unstained by the presence and or effects of sin. And if you could lose it, let's take that thing into its logical conclusion. If you could lose your salvation, then it could be defiled. But God tells us it's undefiled. So, This once again points to the permanence of our salvation. Cannot be defiled, cannot be lost, cannot be corrupted in any way. And it's unfading. The Greek word means pertaining to not losing the wonderful, pristine character of something. One commentator said it's a supernatural beauty that time cannot diminish. You know, I used to be handsome, but time diminished that. That's not going to happen with our spiritual inheritance. It's not going to happen. Okay. 
Some of you were laughing while ago. You used to be handsome too, but look at yourself now. Go to the mirror, okay? But our spiritual inheritance, that's not going to happen. It's not going to get wrinkly. It's not going to get weak. It's not going to get, you know, hurting and hurt to move. And it's, No, it's going to be unfading. Unfading. So to sum this up, to sum up the nature of our inheritance... These three words that Peter was inspired by God to write describe a heavenly inheritance that is absolutely impervious to death, sin, and the effects of time. Now, I know what you might be saying right now, or or might be asking, or might be directing my way in your thoughts. Butch, why, why have you taken up half of your sermon time talking about us as heirs? I thought this study was about Jesus. Well, it is. But let me ask you, shouldn't a study of Jesus be encouraging to followers of Jesus? Let let me try to unpack that question a little bit more. First, I, I can't even describe to you how I long for the messages from this pulpit, whether it be me or another elder, to be encouraging to you. I I, I can't even express that. I, I long, in other words, I long for it to be more than just stuffing our head with knowledge about Jesus. I long for it to be knowledge that goes into your ears, into your brain, and then down into your heart and soul where true life change takes place. So, if we learn from our study of God's Word that Jesus is the heir of all things, like we did last week. And for most of you, probably it wasn't new learning. It was just a reminder. I recognize that. I, I, I understand and know and am extremely grateful for the spiritual maturity of this body of believers. So I know that most of the things I tell you and most of the things that I say from this pulpit are simply reminders, refreshers. I, I know that and I'm thankful for that. And that's what makes you such a wonderful congregation to preach to. I don't take that for granted for one microsecond. But when we see from the Word or are reminded from the Word that Jesus is the heir of all things, and that we also know from the Scriptures that we are fellow heirs with Him, isn't that knowledge that encourages and edifies us. Jesus is the heir of all things. Okay, yeah, got it. Got it. Good. Yeah, amen. Jesus is the heir of all things. In the end, he gets everything. Got that. Great. But wait, 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 wait. We, his followers, are fellow heirs with him. Really? We get everything too? Wow. Wow. 
And I think Romans 15, 4 reflects what I'm trying to say here. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Yeah, instruction, that's good. We need that, we want that, we desire that. What, last month, early, earlier this month, or last month? Teach us, O oh Lord, teach us. Because of our enemies, teach us. Teach us. Instruction, we need that. But then the rest of the verse says that through endurance and through the, get it, encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I've received several encouraging messages lately, texts, emails, words of encouragement, words of constructive criticism. I'm very grateful and very humbled. And one of them said this, one of my prayers over the last couple of years is that I would know God better and this sermon series has been an answer to that prayer. I can't even describe to you what that does for a pastor's heart. I can't even express it. So I won't, I won't, I won't try, but it, I tell you, that it helped me fight the fight. It brings me back another week. It helps me gear up. It helps me put on my blazer one more time. And tie my tie one more time, because this is the only time I wear this stuff, usually except funerals and weddings. So I can't even describe to you what that does for me. Because this is what the elders want for each and every member of this local church, to know God. Not just know about God. Not just fill our, brain, our heads and our brains with a bunch of stuff about God. Remember what Paul said about his fellow Israelites? That Israelites they had a knowledge of God. But it was apart from his righteousness. We want you to know God. We want you to know Jesus. Because Jesus, our head, our Lord, our counselor said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus whom you've sent. That's our prayer. Alistair Begg said this, not on your sheets, so don't look for it. This was a Saturday night edition. At the very best, at the very best, we only have an inkling of the wonder of who God is. At our very best, the most theologically literate and knowledgeable person in this room has only an inkling of the wonder of who God is. But that truth doesn't make us say, okay, well, I'll never know God fully, so why even try? No, it makes me try harder. It makes me read more. It makes me beg God, God, show me your glory. Show me. And, and, and that's primarily from here, from this book. Speak, O oh Lord. Speak, O oh Lord. And as we grow in our knowledge of God and our knowledge of Jesus, it should be encouraging to us. Right? Not just knowledge for knowledge's sake. I probably could have gone through the list of every name we've done so far, every name we've studied so far, and made some connection that should be encouraging to us as God's people, a connection that goes way beyond just knowing facts, an encouragement that takes us to levels above just knowing stuff about Jesus. Examples, we learn that Jesus is our high priest. <laughs> you mean 
He's constantly praying for me? Yep. Now, if that's not encouraging to you, you need to be born again. Emmanuel. You mean he's constantly with us? Yep. Alpha and Omega. Jesus is the beginning of my life, and he's going to be the end of my life. He gave me life. He sustains me through life, and one day I'm going to see him face to face. Alpha and Omega. Bread of life. He's our spiritual nourishment. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Bridegroom. Oh, Jesus is our eternal husband, constantly protecting us and providing for us. Bright morning star. He gives light to this very, very dark world. As I've told you before, more and more the lines are being drawn, beloved, and you better be ready to speak. As I've said, the silent majority thing is over. It's over. But you've got the bright morning star with you. You've got light in this dark world. No matter how dark it gets, there's always light at the end of the darkness for every believer. He's the cornerstone. He's our foundation, the rock on which we stand, our counselor, our source of wisdom, our ultimate final source of wisdom. When it all gets to the bottom of everything, all that's going to matter is what did Jesus say? What does Jesus say about this? What does Jesus say about sexuality? What does Jesus say about marriage? God, speak up. Oh, well, on and on we could go. Bottom line of my rambling, of this long introduction. In this study of Jesus, but in any study we do, any series, any book study, topical study, we want to accomplish more than just knowing stuff about Jesus. We want to know Jesus. We want to know God. For knowing Him, we know true life and true purpose and true meaning. And we are encouraged to live for His glory. Not going to be silent anymore about defending what he has said about important things in our culture. We're learning when to say yes and what to say yes to and what to say no to. Life is not a chaotic, meaningless waste. Our existence is more than just taking up space on the planet. We are ambassadors for Christ. We represent the King of Kings. We take a back seat to no one. What did we learn from our study of Ecclesiastes several years ago? A lot of things, but the bottom line was this, and the preacher, Solomon, probably Solomon, said it at the end of the book. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 
Fear God and keep His commandments. And knowing Jesus helps us to do that. Right? Right? No, and knowing I'm a fellow heir with Jesus motivates the heck out of me to live properly for God's glory and the good of my church family and the good of my physical family. I pray you're with me on that. All right, one more name today. Just one name today, and it's the name of Jesus, the glorious name of Jesus. We've been studying the names of Jesus. Well, Jesus was the name of Jesus, right? So we're going to study that name. As the songwriter said, there's just something about that name. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there's something about that name. Charles Wesley, great hymn writer, Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease, tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. In modern times, the day that we live in, there are two names that parents rarely give to their children. One is Judas, right? Too despicable. And the other is Jesus. Too wonderful. Of course, that wasn't always true. Before the time of Jesus' earthly life, Judas and Jesus were pretty popular names. In fact, the band of disciples, 12 of them, right? Two of them, two out of 12, one-sixth, had the name Judas. Judas Iscariot, the traitor, and Judas, son of James, who was also called Thaddeus. Some of the lists naming Thaddeus in the Gospels, and another one calls him Judas, son of James. Same guy. In addition, according to the Gospels, Jesus had a human brother, named Jesus, I mean Judas, sorry. Jesus had a human brother named Judas. You see that in Matthew 13, 55 and Mark 6, 3. Now, with regard to the name of Jesus, okay, before our Jesus came onto the planet, uh, Kevin DeYoung tells us this. Jesus was a very common name among Jewish males in the first century. From the evidence we have, over 2,500 named Jewish males in documents and inscriptions, scholars estimate that Jesus was the fourth most common name among Jewish men, about one out of 20, behind Simeon or Simon, Joseph, and Judah. If you were a little boy in the first century, in first century Palestine, there would be a very good chance you'd meet a Jesus in your town or synagogue. Now, as we study this name of that was given to our Savior, I wanna, I've got four points I want us to hang our thoughts on, okay? And we're going to try to move through these fairly, fairly quickly, okay? Uh, pray for me in that, okay? Uh, a lot of, lot of uh, chances for uh, rabbit trails here, so got to say disciplined. But four points. Number one, Jesus is a heavenly name. Number two, Jesus is a historical name. Number three, Jesus is the highest name. And number four, it is a hopeful name. So number one, Jesus is a heavenly name that points to his humanity. That's interesting, isn't it? A heavenly name that points to his like usness. okay? We've read our sermon text, you know, in Luke 1, Gabriel came to Mary and told her what she was going to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and he told her what name to give the child. 
So Merry Christmas, okay? And, and add to that what the angel said to Joseph. Joseph gets an angelic visit as well, basically telling him the same thing. She will bear a son. Don't divorce her. She's okay. She's good. Hasn't cheated on you. Child's from God. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus. Why? For, because he will save his people from their sins. So God sends an angel to both the Messiah's earthly parents to tell them what to name this baby. This is, this is a classic and one of the few, I might add, God told me to do this moments in history. Okay? So, so Jesus' name basically came from heaven directly. That's why I'm calling it a heavenly name. But not only his name, but he came from heaven. That's the, that's right. He came from heaven. Warren Wiersbe makes this beautiful point, quote, Every baby born into this world is a person who has never existed before. Now, that's something we don't think about very often. But it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Jesus is the only baby born on this planet that existed before he was born. Every, ba- every other baby born in this world is a person who has never existed before. But when Jesus came into the world, he had existed from all eternity. So his birth had to be different. He came from heaven, sent by the Father. Therefore, his name was given from heaven. So basically, God gave Jesus his name. And isn't it interesting that he gave him a very common name? You know. Not uh, Prince Royalty, Immaculate, Son of God. Just a very common, plain, fourth most popular name. The fourth most common name among Jewish men. Ponder that for a minute. Why do you think he did that? Could it be that God chose a common name for his son to emphasize that he was one of us? He was one of us, like us in all things, yet without sin. He partook of flesh and blood. He gave him a common name to emphasize his humanity, to highlight that he was like us in every single thing, except he never sinned. He was fully human with a very common human name. So Jesus received a name from heaven that highlighted his humanity. This is what Christmas is all about. We're almost there. I'm expecting Hobby Lobby to put up their trees any moment now. They might be up. I haven't been up there in a couple of weeks. So, Um, but anyway, uh, Jesus himself came from heaven and became a member of humanity so that he could die for our sins. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We could only be saved, beloved, if God became human. That was the only way. The common name of Jesus given from heaven points us to that. Secondly, Jesus is a historical name. A historical name that points to his work. That points to his work. Jesus is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua. Joshua means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. Likewise, Jesus means Yahweh saves, or simply Savior. 
And that's exactly what the angel said to Joseph. You shall call this baby Jesus because he will be a savior. He will save his people. His people, not the whole world, his people from their sins. Now we see two major figures in the Old Testament with this historical name. One probably every one of us is familiar with, maybe one not so familiar. But first there's Joshua, the warrior, Moses' sidekick, Moses' second in command, who took over for Moses and led the conquest of Canaan. Just like Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land, Jesus, the new Joshua, leads us into our promised land, heaven, where we get the kingdom, right? Where we are joint heirs with Jesus. This historical Joshua points to Jesus' ultimate work of salvation, his work of bringing God's people to the promised land. But there's another Joshua, the high priest, in the book of Zechariah. Let's read about that. Zechariah chapter 6, uh, verses 9 through 13. And the word of the Lord came to me. Okay, another God told me moment. Keep that in mind. Uh, the word of the Lord came to me. I'm in Zechariah chapter 6. If you're still looking for that, toward the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 6. Beginning at verse 9, and the word of the Lord came to me, take from the exiles Heldai, Tobajai, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown, okay? Go make a crown, got it? Okay, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Now, branch is one of the names we study, right? So, who's this pointing to? This is pointing to Jesus. For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall, shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Okay, so basically, God tells uh, Zechariah, hey, go get some precious metals, make a crown, uh, go visit the priest whose job is not to rule, but make him a ruler. Put a crown on his head. Now, this was a no-no. Putting a crown on a priest, priests can't be kings. And, and kings can't be priests. You remember King Uzziah? He tried to be a priest, and guess what happened? Welcome to the leprosy ward. Okay? This was a no-no. Except for the fact that God told Zechariah to do this. He told him to do this. Another God told me to do this moment. God wanted to give us a picture, a foreshadowing. This Joshua is also a picture of Jesus pointing to his work as both king and priest. Okay? We've studied high priest. We've looked at that name. We're on J. What's the next letter? 
So guess what might be next week, okay? Yeah, king, king. Jesus was both. So Joshua is a historical name. Joshua the warrior, Joshua the kingly priest that points to the work of our Savior in conquering our enemy, ruling us, interceding for us. Number three, Jesus is the highest name, the highest name that points to his lordship. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Because of that, because of Jesus' obedience that took him to the cross to die for our sins, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, the highest name, the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God of God the Father. What a text. What a, what, what a scripture. What a passage. There is no name higher than the name of Jesus. God has given him the name that is above all names. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. There is no getting away from it. You may put the name of Jesus at the very bottom of your list in this life, but a day is coming, dear friend, when you will be looking up at that glorious name. Please, please know that. Please recognize that and acknowledge that now. Now, before you are compelled to. You may spurn this name in this life, But after you die, you will be bowing before it when you appear at the judgment seat. Please, please know that. His name will be above you, and you will confess it as Lord. And then you will be separated from his love and comfort and joy for all eternity. How tragic. Today's the day of salvation. Confess this highest name right now as Lord of all. Finally, number four, Jesus is a hopeful name that points to his salvation. A hopeful name that points to his salvation. Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. This Jesus, this is, I think this is uh, Peter preaching here. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name but the name of Jesus. Listen, listen. Because Jesus came, lived a perfect life, and died on a cross, there is always hope for every unsaved person that they can be saved. All things are possible with God. You may have a loved one that you think is beyond hope. No, they're not. They're not. Okay? Jesus is the hopeful name. A hopeful name that points 
to the grace of salvation. But there's only one way. And our unsaved loved ones need to know this. There's only one way. And it's through only one person that a person can be saved. They can't save themselves. They can't make up their own rules and try to earn their salvation by human merit. As DeYoung puts it, quote, There is nowhere else we ought to look for our salvation than in Christ. You cannot trust Christ truly unless you trust Christ alone. No matter how much you boast of Christ or talk of your love for Christ or passion for Christ, if you add anything to Christ, your boasting and love and passion are all in vain. There is no both and with Jesus, only either or. Either Jesus is the only Savior, the perfect Savior, and our only hope, or Jesus is for you no Savior at all. And beloved, think about it. I know it's been a long, long time ago, but remember Galatians 5? That's exactly what Paul said. That's exactly what Paul said in Galatians 5, verses 2 to 4. In response to, remember the setting? This group called the Judaizers had come in to the Galatian Christians, new believers, you know, still young in their faith. And they're trying to get the Galatian Christians to be circumcised. They say, okay, yeah, yeah, believing in Jesus, that's good, that's good, but man, your salvation is not complete if you don't do something. It would be like us as Baptists saying, okay, yeah, you believe in Jesus, good, but you're not saved yet because you hadn't been in the waters of baptism. No, 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 no. It's Jesus alone, okay? And remember what Paul said to those Galatians? I mean, to those Judaizers? He said, look, look. And I remember preaching that, and that we spent about 10 minutes on that word. It's like Paul saying, look here. Like my old preacher used to say, turn your little beady eyes up here. Look, look, I'm, get, pay attention. Pay attention. You remember that, don't you? So, yeah, turn your little beady eyes right up here. Look. Look, wake up, look. I, Paul, I, and he reminds him who he is. I, Paul, the apostle, the apostle, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, and take circumcision and plug in anything in, the, in our baptism. Ba- uh, whatever, whatever ladder you have that, think you, that you think you've got to climb to get to Jesus. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept this work, in that day it was circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Beloved, you can't add anything to Jesus. You can't add anything. If you try to, then, Je- then you lose Jesus. You see that? You see what Paul is saying? Not what I'm saying, what Paul's saying. It's Jesus alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. If you add anything to Christ, your boasting and love and passion are all in vain. Back to Paul. He says, I testify again to every man. He he says it twice. He wants to make sure we got it. 
I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. What's Paul saying there, basically? Okay, you want to keep the law and circumcision to save yourself? Okay, then you got to do it all. you got to obey it all perfectly. The whole law. Perfectly. In thought, word, and deed. Good luck. Then he goes... You are severed from Christ. You're severed. If you try to save yourself, try to add a work to it, you're severed. Cut off. You're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. I love what Scotty Smith said in one of his prayers this week. He said, when Jesus died, performance-based spirituality took a beat down. Works righteousness, legalism, and heaven by merit were exposed as frauds. Hallelujah. Amen, Scotty. Final word today goes to the first question and answer of the famous Heidelberg Catechism. Question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul in life and and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. My earnest prayer is that all of you belong to Jesus, our only comfort in life and death, and that you will live for him with every fiber of your being, without apology, and without compromise. As Peter taught us in our study of his second letter, this is how you make your calling and election sure. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus, the indescribable gift who came from heaven, took a common name and became one of us, and then died for our sin. Was raised the third day to prove that he had defeated death. Not only for himself, but for us. And now we, by his Holy Spirit, can walk in newness of life. Shoulder to shoulder with each other, with our eyes fixed on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. God bless our time at this table. What a joy to fellowship with the Son of God, and with each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.